0: Welcome everyone to another episode of where's this going again before we get into it I want to please remind you to take a second to go to my YouTube channel You can find by searching my name Felix Levine on YouTube and hit that subscribe button There you'll find every episode in its full video versions as well as smaller clips and highlights from those episodes And also if you haven't done so please go to Instagram and follow me at felix.levine to stay updated on new episodes And everything related as it comes out Also, if you're listening to this right now, please just take a quick second to go rate and review this five stars on Apple's podcast app. That would be a massive help. And my next guest, he is a formerly incarcerated actor who appeared on A Bronx Tale, as well as The Sopranos and a lot of other successful shows. Please welcome Lilo Brancato Jr. Boom. and we're live Lilo Brancato thank you uh thank you so much for coming in the studio today I appreciate it
1: thank you for having me bro I really really appreciate the opportunity
0: so I told you a few seconds ago um if there's a little maybe a little tidbit a little story a little something that the world doesn't know about you I know you've done a ton of interviews over over your life
1: um well I don't think the world knows my my nickname what's your nickname it's Lilucho. 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 and who calls you that my very, you know, uh, childhood friends, dear friends, uh, a lot of my relatives, my mom, you know, Lilucho. But then, you know, it's like uh, that, because well, my father was Lilo as well. So I guess Lilucho is like when you say Ito in Spanish, right. it's like little Carlos is Carlito. Right. So I guess it was just uh, a way of saying little Lilo.
0: Now, I want to, so speaking of your childhood, I think, uh, you know, I've listened to a lot of your interviews the past couple of days. Um, and I want to go more in maybe a chronological sense of, you had an interesting childhood. You were adopted. Um, and so at what age were you adopted? Um,
1: I came here when I was four months old. Okay. January 1st, 1977 was my first day here. And I was born August 30th, 1976. And
0: I heard that you... Mm-hmm. So you never actually met your biological parents? No. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And there was never any desire to?
1: Um No. I mean... Um, I mean, the only thing that I would wanna know if there was maybe anything I'm predisposed to or genetically, right. you know, cancer, or maybe a certain type of, uh, you know, a certain illness that I can maybe protect myself from and take certain precautions and certain, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's the only reason why, but as far as maybe longing for something that I, I missed out on or, or, or didn't have as a kid, I, that never was that an issue. I mean, my parents, you know, old school Italian, They, they, my dad, you know, passed away a couple of years ago, rest in peace. But he Was you know a Sicilian immigrant, he built homes and worked really, really hard. And uh, we we had everything we needed and wanted and more as kids. Uh, we were blessed to grow up in a you know great, great neighborhood, kids everywhere. So, uh, you know, I had a great childhood, I really did.
0: Do you think you'll ever try to um piece together who your biological parents are at some point down the line?
1: Um, you know, I don't know, hmm. uh, if it was right now, I don't know if I would do that. Mm. Because right now, I've sort of created like a I don't know, a pretty well-oiled machine in the way I operate and things are going well for me. Mm-hmm. And I have a system. My life is like one big system and the structure that I incorporated in my life that I learned in prison. Nice. Um, I have something that's working right now. And thank God, because he gives me the strength to stay on the right path, necessary to... Implement these things in my life and to live and to be successful. So, you know Doing something like that where you go, you know, and search for your parents, you never know what you're gonna find Mm -hmm. And you may be so disappointed and all that system and everything you put in place Now it's you can't even think about those things anymore. All you can think about is Wow Wow,
0: I mean also just to think so you're 44 correct
1: 44. Yes
0: I mean just the the life that you've had right and you're only you're still so young um, is is pretty remarkable and obviously we're gonna go down uh, the list and, and talk about all these different things But I think also I'm curious um, So as a kid, what were you like? Were you? Uh, I mean, were there any struggles or um, You know, what was a young Lilo Brancato like?
1: Um, I was always a class clown. I needed attention. I was trying to make people laugh. Uh, I did a lot of impersonations <clears throat> mostly of people that we knew so like my uncles would be like, oh, do that guy, do that guy, you know what I mean? Another older guy and like my friend's father and I did some good impersonations, but I was bad in school. I used to fight and uh, I was like I said, a class clown and I was getting thrown out of schools, but I was always a good student. I always did well. I was always an honorable student, always made that a priority to get good grades and that's what I'm there for. You know, so you might as well get something out of it. Um, but yeah, you know, I got thrown out of a few schools and my life really didn't have direction. But there was no drugs or anything like that yet. Right. Um, I was in 10th grade and I went to like three schools that year because I was thrown out of Sacred Heart in September. They didn't want me back.
0: What was what was the reason?
1: Well, it was an accumulation of things. They had just put me on probation that year. They didn't even want me back for 10th grade. My my parents like had to beg them, please, because it was right near us. It was very convenient right. to go there. And uh, Brother Houghton and uh, Miss Flynn, they said, okay. And they, you know, I, I went back, I got thrown out September 26th. So like, I didn't even last a month. And they had my best friend in all the same classes, my friend Paul Agostino, on broncado. Brancato. So alphabetically, we used to sit right next to each other. And we got in so much trouble. Because he Because in, in ninth grade, we weren't in the same classes. And now it's like you look at it and they're like, oh my God, this guy's in this class. So it was like just a recipe for disaster. Right. And we even make it to October. I got thrown out September 26th. On um, that, that particular incident was because on the street my friend got jumped by these kids who was friends with this one kid. I was a sophomore. This kid was a senior, so I went up to him in the cafeteria and I'm like, "Hey, what's up, man? Heard your friend had a problem, with my friend." So we started, to, you know, talking like that. My friend Paulie, uh, you know, he had my back, so we were in the cafeteria. And next thing, these were seniors; they were bigger kids. Then this one guy, Joe, real big guy. I remember he swung at us and, and uh, he missed, and he hit Brother Richard in the cafeteria. So it was a disaster, <laughs> and I got th- I got yeah. th- I got thrown out. <laughs> I got thrown out that day, and uh, and you know then I I missed a month, and I went to another school, and then I got thrown out of there because I wasn't I wasn't I was using a fake address. So my parents didn't want to send me Yonkers public schools. They were bad. Right. So we said, maybe we'll send you a little further, half hour away with my cousin at house. I know it's illegal, but my parents just want the best right. for me. That's, you know what I mean? Right. Believe me, they knew it was illegal, and they were afraid to do it. Because so my parents would buy the book. You know what I mean? They're like, you know, old school. But they knew it was, you know, mm-hmm. the greater good, right. and this guy's going to get a better education right, right. there. But, uh, and then, you know, three schools, then summer came, but I did work at a law office. Uh, my friend Corey Rabin, he's like my mentor, um, you know, my father, like I said, built homes. Corey was the lawyer who did the closings. We were very close to his family. His father's a judge. The Ravens, very good people. He's one of my best friends and my mentor. And he's in recovery as well. He's in his 60s. And, uh, this guy's made a very big difference in my life. And I used to work for him. I was getting nine fifty an hour in 1992. Wow. You know yeah. what I mean? Off the, you know, nine fifty yeah. an hour. That's a lot of money back <laughs> no, then. No, no. And, uh, so that's what I did. I filed and I answered phones. And then, uh... July 5th, 1992, I was on Jones Beach and we had heard about a film called The Bronx Tale. And it was like a a big thing in the neighborhood and in the five boroughs. So you hadn't acted previous? Never.
0: You didn't even think of it?
1: Never even thought of it. Wow. So we were, you know, like I would hear about The Bronx Tale, like on the radio, Robert De Niro making his directorial, looking for kids, went through the whole thing. And it was like, just hearing that, it's just so like intimidating that I would never go read You know what I mean? But I knew, like I looked, everyone tells me I look like the guy. Maybe I could be good, but nah. You know, like such a long shot. So I never really put much thought. My cousin went to read, a few of my friends went to read, but you hear so many stories, oh, this guy got the part, this guy got the, you know. And that's just where we live. So in like the five boroughs, there's probably like 300 kids that said they got the part. So, July 5th, 1992. Day before, we lighting off fireworks. We decided we'll go to the beach. And we were there that day my brother calls me out of the water because the guy was handing out flyers his name's marco greco he was a scout and he was like you know the my brother's like oh hold on i'll get my brother he looks just like him so he got me out of the water i met the guy he automatically you know saw the resemblance he's seeing it wow this kid does look like his son so he's like if you have acted i said no i said but i watch a lot of de niro movies so i started doing the faces and all he's like oh this guy that was a Sunday. He was. He said we're usually closed. I want you to come in. Come in tonight. And I remember my friends brought me down there. Went home from the beach, took a shower, got ready. I was nervous. <clears throat> my friends took me down to the Bronx, the actual neighborhood where the film took place. Okay. They had a. Uh, that's called like the Fordham Belmont section of the Bronx, mm-hmm. and uh, they had their own like. Uh, you know, the Fordham section of the Bronx. It's like they had their own little playhouse. It was called the Fordham, the Belmont Playhouse. Okay. They used to do like, you know, little uh, plays and, you know, so this I didn't know that, but I heard about all this after. So I went down, the guy Marco was there, I'm in the playhouse and he gives me a scene, the one with the shaving. But it, originally De Niro was shaving and I go up to him and say, hey dad, let me ask you a question. So, he said, learn the lines and I'll come back and we'll do it. And, uh, we, you know, I learned them, and it just was something I was able to do. Like, I just knew how to do it. I just everything made sense. All right, interior, night, bathroom. Hello, walks to the, the, Lorenzo as he's shaving, blah, blah, yeah. Hey, Dad, let me ask you a question about some, you know Joe Obama from down the block? Yeah. Yeah, well, he asked me, yeah. and I was just like, this is easy, I could do this. This is like, why, people find this hard? I'm thinking in my mind, you know? But you don't know that this, like, not everyone can do this. Mm. But then there's something else that he does that not everyone can do. You know what I mean? Everybody's got, a, 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 you know, a talent. So,
0: so did you know exactly on the spot this was where where your life was headed? You were going to be an actor.
1: Right there when I did that? Yeah. No, no, not yet. Uh, because I didn't know what I was up against. Right. I don't know this world. You know okay. what I mean? Right. I don't even know if I really did a good job. I know I knew what to do, but I'm saying there's probably kids out there in my mind. I'm thinking okay. there's probably kids out there, great, the next and hero, you know? Okay. So, this was the VHS tape days. This is 1992. So, he puts me on tape. He says, call me. We exchanged numbers. Call me in a few days. I'll tell you how you did. They called me the next day from De Niro's office. They said they saw the tape. They want me to come down. So, now I got to call my boss, Corey, and said, hey, listen. I'm not going to be able to make it. Remember that De Niro movie? I got to call back. And I, oh, that's great. I said, but I got my cousin, Pat. Uh, you know, I'll have him come because Pat's a judge now. Pat went there, and then he took over that job, you know what I mean? So then because of that, being around Corey, and Corey's such a great influence, such a great guy, Pat became a lawyer. Mm -hmm. He just, on election day, just, he's the judge, where he is now. So, you know, it's everything, you know what I mean? So, uh, and we still see Corey, we go out, you know, and these guys like, because I'm single, these guys are not. So they live vicariously yeah. through me about certain things. You know? What I mean? They get all excited.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Think so we could talk about it off camera. Yeah. yeah. So
1: um Pat went in and then I just kept getting called back. And the first there was like a million kids in there. Kids in the corner, like reading the lines. Hey, you know, like doing like real actors. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. And then I just kept going and going and going. And as I was getting called back, there was less and less people. Right. And uh It was common sense. Like, I must be doing a good job because it's still me. And then, you know, and then it was just me.
0: How many callbacks are there?
1: Uh, at that point, it was maybe three weeks. Wow. Every day. Every day. So then they finally said, we're going to go upstairs and meet Bob. I didn't know it was Robert De Niro. I said, Bob. And he has back to me. turned around. I saw him. Oh, wow. And then I knew it was real. And then we started working together. And I was reading, like, a million different girls for the part. Uh, you know, everything. And, uh, Then one day, Robert De Niro said, I want you to put on dress clothes like you're going to church. We're going to do a screen test. We're going to put you on film. And then that's when I knew the kid from who shot Sonny, he was the other person who was going to be C. It was me versus him. I didn't know that. I thought I had the part because I was going down there for like two weeks straight. I'm the only guy there. I mean, it's you know, where they right. hiding the other guy under the couch, <laughs> right? You know, right, so right, like, right. it's common sense. I see everybody, I see multiple guys coming for that role and that role, but I'm the only guy coming here. From, so it's you know, mm. and then when this guy comes and we're in the screening room, everybody all everybody's being screen tested, all the finalists that day. So the whole room's packed, and I'm sitting there with my father, and this guy comes up behind me. He's like, "Hey, hey, don't, buddy. I'm Phil Garbarino. I'm reading for C." So I'm like, "Oh, boy." Cause you got to like he didn't make it to this, he's got to be good. He did right. something, you know, to right. d- deserve to be where he is today. So I don't know what I'm up against. Yeah, I look like the Nero, but so what? He could look like the mother. He could <laughs> still look like their son. You know what yeah. I mean? So now I was like, oof! That that changed everything. So, um, I mean, the, the 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 anxiety, the stress. Now it's like ten times worse. But uh, they did all the other part, you know, all the other characters, and then it was just me versus him. Me versus him, and he would go in. I would go in. He would go, in. and then it was the scene when Chad smacks him around, and uh, he went first. They beat him to a pulp. Literally, they they really. So I'm thinking I'm going to go in and get the same thing. He comes out. His shirt was ripped. He got handprints, and my father looked at me like, "What are you doing? like? Like, what is this shit? You know what I mean? Like, we didn't know this was going to happen. So now I went in, and they and I did the scene. You know, when one chat, when Sonny said you put it, you, mm-hmm. to, you go in my car. So now, I do the scene. They never hit me once. They never hit me once. So I was like, wow, uh, it was like almost for free to go in the room. So that was Thursday, Friday, I didn't hear from anybody. They called me Sunday and said Bob would like to see you. So that Monday was the day he told me.
0: So know, how does he say it to you?
1: Well. You didn't know what, he he could have went either way. It was very ambiguous. Because, you know, he makes a lot of facial expressions and, well, we like what you did, but Phil's got a little more experience and, you know, we think with the money that we're spending in, it's a big movie, we just think a 21-year-old is more suited for this responsibility. Could put it in a nice way and that would have been it. But he said, um, nah. He said we liked everything that you did, and uh, and it still could have went. We liked everything that you did. You got a, you got, but, you know you got a shot in this business, but not on the bronze <laughs> tail. Maybe <laughs> on the next one, but uh, and then he told me he got the part. I was like, wow. Came went out. So, well, I talked to my you know my father.
0: Was was at the time Robert like De Niro in your eyes like a godlike figure?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's my uh, it was my childhood. Uh, you know, it's my idol. I mean, I watched all this. When he did Cape Fear, I grew my hair out because of the character. Go for
0: it. Go for it. it. Take it, take it. it. We'll just cut it.
1: Okay. Um, So, yeah, I mean, this was like a dream come true. I used to like put fake tattoos on me, grow my hair like Cape Fear. And I, you know, like, because somebody told me when I was working at a florist as a kid, I had an Atlanta Braves hat on and it was Christmas time. And I was putting the Christmas wreaths outside on display. So I got my head down, put them down. And the guy says, hey, he asked me a question. I looked up, he goes, oh my God. He goes, you, never told you, you look like Robert De Niro. I heard the name. But I didn't really know who he right. was. So then we started. And then my father was like, yeah, you know, he's like, I got a summer movie with Robert De Niro. So he showed me. I was like, oh, this guy? And I was like, yeah. So now I became like obsessed. I'm watching all the movies, studying the acting and you know, the characters and the, so this was like a dream come true. It was like, you know, too good to be true.
0: Now, so you're at the time, what, 15, 16 when you get it?
1: 15, 15 years old when they found me. When they gave me the part, I was 15, but when we actually started shooting the film, I was 16. Okay. Because August 30th is my birthday. I turned 16. They found me July 5th. Okay. So I had the part right before my birthday. Because I remember August 31st was the first day they shot the movie. Uh, that was Prince, okay. the first day of principal photography. You know, like, and I watched that movie, The Bronx Tale. And for many years, I couldn't watch it and analyze it for the quality and what it is. But it's such a great movie. Mm-hmm. You watch it after so many years. And, uh, you know, just so much goes into it. But, like, you know, I watched that scene again the other day when when... The, when Sonny kills that guy in the street. That scene was so awesome. Just the way it was shot and the kid and back to Sonny and Chaz, just the way he looked at him and then he put his head down, he did it perfect. If he would've did it for one second more, it would've been too much. Like just the way he mm. did it, it, was perfect. Like I'm just watching him, I'm hanging on and he did it and he did it perfect. He dropped you right at the right yeah. time. And another thing too, like you know the squibs, when they pop, when you boom, boom, you getting shot. And I just spoke to the guy who was breaking the window. We could, Joe Black is his name. Right. Uh I just spoke to him the other day. He's doing well. Uh he's a good guy. And uh he was so perfect, and nobody knew that was Pesci. Right. And then they hide <laughs> it to the end. It's like, wow, that was friggin' you And when he goes, fuck you, you free hole. But when he said that, that word is a real Bronx word, right. free hole. When he said, fuck you, you free-. And now you go watch him, because you have when you know it's him, then you go back and watch it and then you're like, oh yeah, that is him. Mm-hmm. You'll never see that mm-hmm. in the beginning. But if you remember when Chaz shoots him, the first squib that pops, what I thought was so awesome, is right here. Because mm. when he's like this with the bat, boom, that first one popped out of his arm. I was like, yo, that was so good. That was so good. The way it was shot. And then when he comes, he shoots him right in the head and he goes, get this car out of here. But that was perfect. That was a beautiful scene. Just everything about that film. Robert De Niro paid... Paid attention to detail. Yeah. That's why that film was so great. He paid attention to every little detail. There were films I was on, I'm not gonna say any names. There were films I, on, I used to have a different haircut every day. Nobody said anything. I was like, all right, like you don't know that this like, this is way different than it was yesterday. You if you're okay with it, I'm okay with it too. You know, but De Niro would cut uh, just the tie if it's out of place. Your hair, I mean, every little detail. These, I'm just giving it from the biggest details right. to the littlest details. And that's why the film was the way it was. And I learned a lot. You know, I produced the film myself. Uh, I also work for, a, I also work for a, a drug rehab, director of public relations. And one of my obligations is to do right. a one minute movie for them having to do with addiction. So I conceptualize, I direct, and uh, you know, there's a lot, you know, and I'm big on the detail too.
0: And that's a lot that I want to get into after, but I'm just wondering right now. So when it comes out, you're about 16? then 16 no the
1: film came out i was 17, 17 it, came it came out in the out? fall of of uh 93.
0: 93 so boy pictures okay so then at that point you're 17 and people recognize you i'd imagine they know you i mean you're top of the world No, especially for a 17 year old It probably can't get any better than that
1: um i mean yeah it was it was yeah. definitely life-changing i mean
0: i mean w- w- would you get noticed you know, on the street, would oh, people yeah. come up to you and yeah, yeah? It was like the full celebrity kind of experience. Yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely.
0: And did you? Is that something that you really enjoyed? Is that something that was scary to you at the time?
1: Well, the attention comes in all different forms. Right. So some of it you enjoy and some of it you don't. You get people that are just jealous and they want to start calling you, right. and they, hey, jerk off. You know, yeah. like for what? Because I was in, like, I don't understand this. You know. But then you got people that love you and admire you, and you know, I mean, and that's a beautiful thing, that to have some complete stranger come up to you and tell you, you know, I love you and I admire your work, that's that's special.
0: Did you feel invincible?
1: Yeah, to a certain extent I did. Because it just happened when I was like that age, it almost felt like this is what's supposed to happen. From Bronx Tale to Renaissance Man to Crimson Tide. These are three studio films for a guy who's never done anything like this, has no experience and is getting thrown in these situations without the experience. That's that's the most da- that's dangerous.
0: And do you think that the the drugs and all of that that we'll talk about after um that would have happened if you hadn't had this life at such a young age and this attention at such a young age.
1: Maybe at not such a young age, but it would have happened because it's my personality. Okay. It's my personality, you know?
0: And you first dabbled, I believe, at fifteen is is what I heard in previous interviews? No, sixteen years old. Sixteen. Okay. Yeah.
1: It was like November of two uh 1992, Um is when I first smoked marijuana.
0: Okay. And at that point, did you realize like, oh, this is something I'll do a couple more times? Did you think that you were at risk? Did you I mean I
1: didn't think anything. I just thought I was curious. Right. You know, I heard about it. Yes. So let's do it. Okay. I heard it was relatively harmless. You know what I mean? Um, I had an uncle that did it and it was no big deal. He didn't; His life was fine, you know? Yeah. He was in some like, you know? Um, so I was curious and I tried
0: it. And then, so where did it, you know, where did it go from there?
1: Well, it went from that, you know, that every day. Um, then I was going out on the weekends and started going out during the week, drinking alcohol, you right. know, every time I'm out, excessively, because that was my personality once again. And it still is, it still is.
0: Um, but do you think it's the personality, and then amplified by the fact that it—you know—you have people coming up to you right. and, no, and no. here have this and this right. and this. Absolutely. Right.
1: right. In addition to that, yes, and that's definitely an aggravating. It right. aggravates this whole, and it speeds it up. I maybe in my early twenties, maybe I would have started, but with this, when you're at parties in the hills and there's cocaine everywhere, you know, beautiful women, and you see people that like. You know, own the house. It's like a $5 million house. They're doing it. Yeah. Like, it may not be that. But look at the house this guy has. He's, he's had to have done something to put this together. You know? So this the, these are the kind of things that, you know, I, I saw early on. But like with anything else, you never think it's going to happen to you. Right. Um, So I just kept going. And then, you know, I was introduced to the cocaine. Loved it. Then I said, wow, you know, maybe if I do this when I go out, because it was like made me feel like so good, like sentimental. I love you, man. And like this would be the key. And you think it's just as simple as that. And but, you know, like cocaine is like referred to as the devil. And when the devil caresses you, he wants your soul. And that's what he's doing in the beginning. So you think there's going to be like this all the time. But the more you do it, the less you feel as good as you did that first time. And you feel little flashes of it, but it gets more diluted every time, and then it kicks into the whole psychosis part of it—the paranoia, the delusional behavior, people in the wall—and you know, like, you know what I mean? Right. Then it goes to that because you abuse it.
0: So you were, so for the most part, growing up, you were—I mean, you had your head on straight, you know, like Pretty little much. school things here and there. But you were. But you were, I was a good student. You were a good student. You I, had, was you I was focused. I was an mo- athlete. You were motivated. You know? Right. And then, okay, so you were never, I mean, there was never any signs to maybe an outside person looking in that, oh, Lilo might be at risk of falling into an addictive pattern, right?
1: Not at that point. There were no signs of anything. And, you know, growing up where I did in the neighborhood, it was all old school Italians, not Italian Americans, like the immigrant types. And they they all had kids. So that drug stuff did not go on. Because these old school parents, first of all, they for, you know it was forbidden, right, right. and but it just wasn't around. Right. So there's no experience. You don't know anybody that's doing it. So when it does present itself, you don't you don't know what to do. And that's why sometimes I see you know I see the way people baby their kids, and I know you want to protect your kids, and I know you love right. them, and I know you want what's best for them. But sometimes you gotta let them go a little bit, and you gotta let them f- see certain things. Because you know what? Life is not always peach. You know, life mm. is not always good. You know, it's, you never know what's coming. Right. And, you know, a, a smooth water's never made a skilled sailor. Sometimes you have to experience turbulent waters. That only makes you better. You know, like, a lot of people like, you know, of course, prison, the word, the stigma behind, you know, it's an ugly word. And, you know, I, I mean, not at the expense of, you know, the, 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 the heroic police officer lost his life. But I'm saying prison for me was like, it was, I wouldn't be where I am today had I not been there. And people want to like, prison can be a good place. It can be a place where God takes mercy on you mm-hmm. and says go here for a while. But you have to see it that way. You have to recognize it as that being a sign and a sign in that way. Because not only everybody does. Some people look at it, but I could go meet new people here, become a better criminal, and when I come home, I won't get caught like I did this time. It's a whole different mentalities, but that's the way I saw it. And you know, I, I owe a lot of the way I am today. I'm so focused, so disciplined, and so structured because of prison. It's like there's no, you're gonna cry, you think you're gonna go home, you're not going home. You gotta tough it out. And then it comes to a point where what bothers you doesn't bother you anymore. And you just see as time goes on. Like wow, like when I first went there, I was like a kid, grew up, you know, I was a spoiled brat, my parents gave me everything. You know, had the best of everything, the best birthday parties, the best communion. You know, they spent so much money and like, you know. And then to make matters worse, then I'm like in these movies. So it's yeah. like, who's gonna tell me anything? Yeah. You know, I'm making all this money as a kid. And you know,
0: did I they mean, ever, did they ever find not to interrupt you, did no. they ever find no. out uh or could tell about the drugs that started to, to it was so it was right when you're about sixteen, seventeen, you start dabbling and then it, it kind of just progresses from there, yeah? Yeah. And and they to
1: hallucinogens like mushrooms. and
0: How old are you when you started?
1: Seventeen, eighteen. Oh, okay. Mescaline.
0: And did they have any idea?
1: Uh, yeah, they did. My parents knew I was smoking a little weed and stuff like that. And to them, that's like heroin. Right. These old school Italians, yeah. they, you know, that's very bad. Um, I don't think marijuana is all that bad. I think people can use it if
0: uh, these days it's de yeah. stigmatized.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's uh. I think it's uh, very, it, it can help. It can yeah. help so many in, you know, dealing with addiction. Right. It's, uh, you know, I mean, from so many years, the way it was spoken about and it was just not legal. Right. And so many people think it's so bad. But I think it has so many positive things.
0: But you would find a way to separate career and drug use. Or no?
1: In the beginning, I did because I still wasn't that far gone. Right. But as time went on, there's, you know, I mean, there was scene, you know, the scenes I did in The Sopranos where I was high. Right. I had read that. And, yeah. And major motion pictures. I was there high.
0: So at the and end. Then, could it, they tell?
1: Yeah. I mean, they're not going to say it, but they could tell. You, could, you think you're fooling everyone, but you're not fooling. You're only fooling yourself.
0: And was it at that point because you were already addicted or because you're like, ah, fuck it. Let's see if I could do it. Or was it you just thought you were invincible? What, no, was not it? The
1: invincible. I just needed
0: it. Okay, yeah, I had so to, it was addictive at that uh, point. Yeah,
1: addictive, right. It was 100% addictive. and Because I would do cocaine all night, and then it's like I got to go to work the next day, and I'd be all like geeked out, my jaw going, I can't go to work like that. Right. So then I would go snort a bag of heroin just to come down from that to the point where now I'm like normal. But with that dope, now you're going to be throwing up every five minutes. You'd be to- yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, but uh, yeah, it was bad.
0: So did you, but at that point, did you ever feel like uh, this is a problem? Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: I knew it was a problem before that.
0: When did you know it was a problem?
1: I knew it was a a problem probably, like, by 1920. Okay. And I still went till 29, you know what I mean? And if I hadn't got locked up, I'd probably be dead right now. Um, Yeah, because, like, I seen, like, as we were getting older, like, all the guys I did it with, and these guys just stopped. And they're, like, meeting girls, and you know what I mean? It's just... And I'm not. like I, now it's like I'm a Tuesday night, I went and got myself a gram, I'm cutting it up on my you know junior high school yearbook and snorting blowing on Tuesday night in my room for absolutely no reason. That's a problem.
0: And but at 1920, when you realize it's a problem, are you telling yourself, "I want help? What do you?" Or is it just like, ah, we'll see where this goes?" Exactly.. Right.
1: Because you're too embarrassed, and you never think it's going to happen to you. Right. All the stuff you hear about on TV, all this it's not going to happen to you.
0: And you thought you could you could do the career, the acting career and be that big star while doing it, and you'd be fine. Right. Right.
1: But, you know, I was uh so mistaken. Then,
0: so then, um, and I don't know how much you want. I mean, you probably talked about it. I, I mean, I've seen the interviews a million times with the whole jail situation and, and you know, the incident of that night. Um, but, and people can go figure that out and, and go look it up. I'm more interested in hearing your mental, psychological process of knowing you're gonna to go to prison. Um and I mean I can only imagine, because you're also a high profile individual, that when this news breaks, you just I don't know, did you feel like the world was crashing in on you? Did you feel like what was going on in your mind? You get arrested. What are you thinking?
1: Well well we we had both well, all three, there was all three of us were shot. So I couldn't think of anything else but
0: where do you get shot by the way?
1: I got shot once, twice and then Right here, so I couldn't think of anything other than to just survive the night because I started getting weak I was losing a lot of blood. But in the beginning, like when they charged me with murder, I'm like, "How does that happen? I didn't even have a gun. I didn't shoot anyone. I didn't know there was a gun. So like, how does this? How are you charging me with murder? You're not thinking maybe an accessory? And they're like, "No, you got murder too. That's 25 to life, bro." So I'm thinking, "How the hell does this happen?" Then I learned about the whole felony murder thing if you attempt to commit you commit in furtherance or an immediate flight there from a felony causes the death of a non participant that's felony murder so they're like, oh wow, I'm tied into this like through this." and it was very scary
0: very scary they were telling you'd you be there for life Yeah a lot of people like, you know oh, man you ain't going to beat that you ain't going to beat well, that what are you thinking when someone's telling you spend the rest of your life in jail?
1: I'm thinking it's gonna. It's true. I think it's, it's going to happen because a lot of guys that told me have, they got experience in jail and prisons and have seen, you know, sentences handed down to guys that did this and oh, this is a cop, in New York City, you know what I mean. So I was very, very, you know, very scared of the outcome of the possible outcome.
0: And was it made worse by the fact that you were this, you know, up and coming or at least very established at the point at that time, actor?
1: Um. It made it worse in some regards, but it made it better in some. Because, you know, you got some CEOs that, you know, love the movie and they give you a little, you know, little half a sandwich or, you know what I mean? That was cool, but then you get some that'll go out of their way to make it harder for you to let you know you're not making movies. This is something else. And I'm going to show you that it's something else. So it could work with you or against you.
0: And your parents and family, I mean, did you feel a sense of embarrassment? I mean, what what, what was their reaction and... how they treat you? Through my that parents whole were
1: heartbroken. Yeah. My parents were heartbroken over it. Um, you know, my relatives. Uh, I mean, they all. I mean, look, it was a sad time. It was a very sad time, because I mean, yes, someone died. I mean, you know, another yeah. person died, the hands of my addiction, and that's something I got to live with. I got shot. You know, the whole drug addiction thing. It was a lot. There's many, many things going on.
0: And in the beginning cuz I know, you know, we'll talk about the drug use in prison in a second. In the beginning, I imagine you weren't using right when you got in or you couldn't. I mean, I, f- I feel like it was a little bit more strict then, no.
1: When I first got to Rikers? Yeah. Uh, no. We used like right away. I was so in a-
0: how's it work? How's it work? <laughs> cuz I, you know, obviously it's supposed to not be like that.
1: Well, you know, you got to understand when I first got there, we were like we were like in wheelchairs, and you know we right. were all shot up. We're in a medical dorm in NIC in Rikers Rock on Rikers Island, North Infirmary Command. So it's basically a hospital. It's an infirmary. You got the main building, and then you have the annex. We went to the annex because they got medical dorms. You got a million wheelchairs in this place. Like you got bad guys in wheelchairs. Well, you God only knows what's hidden in those
0: wheelchairs. Are you guys they handcuffed got... to the wheelchairs? Is it? How's it? No, 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 okay. not that. Yeah.
1: You got guys with syringes in their things. They got HIV. They got syringes in their thing. They got knives. Guys just come up to you, hit you with the needle. Now you got, you know what I mean? It's a very crazy place. So when we got to the medical dorms, <clears throat> it's a big dorm, like maybe 30 beds. But we were in the back where they had us locked in because we're high profile. We had our own TVs, though. They didn't even want to bring us out at first. And my co-defendant, Steve, he was going crazy. No, we get an hour wreck. So eventually they said, "All right, let them out and see what happens." Because they will like try and protect us. But you know, my you know the guy I was with, he was he told the the dept security, security goes, "What are you trying to protect us from? These guys are in wheelchairs. What are they gonna do?" You know, that's basically what he said. So we went out there, and uh, I gotta tell you, it was pretty crazy. Because when we went out there, I was afraid. I'm not gonna lie, I was afraid.
0: So what do you see? Like,
1: soon as we come out, because we're in this back where there's three cells, and then they open up the other gate, the other thing. And now we come out and i'm looking i'm seeing all like the whole like big warehouse full of beds it's a dorm and it's like you know and when one guy noticed us and then like when they all saw us they went
0: crazy so how many guys are in there in this dorm there's
1: like 30 40 guys
0: 30 40 they see you guys and you guys are all in wheelchairs
1: yeah and they came when they saw us they went crazy like in a good way okay because we were all over the paper right as far as they're concerned we just killed a cop you know they don't like cops, and that that's like the best thing you could go to jail for. Right. It's like you know, like you, to you know the guys in there, you're like a hero. So like when we go in there, and they 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 noticed us, they everybody went crazy. They started whistling and you hear gunshots, and they went up to Steve, you know, because they knew he was the guy that shot. You got guys kissing his his trigger finger. You know, serious. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It was like yeah, you know, you know, but it was crazy. It was like
0: I was like wow. So what do you so what are you thinking then? Are you like. I I don't even know what one thinks you're you're shot. you're in a wheelchair,
1: yeah, I, I had a collapsed lung in the lowest part of my face arrest, somebody died facing the rest of my life in prison. I'm oh, i'm 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 withdrawing from a twenty to twenty bag a day heroin habit. I never shot heroin I used to snort it because I had money. I never shot it. Guys that choose because then five they can't afford they're, you know, you know what I mean what,
0: what is like, would you say like the average cocaine user? How many bags a day are they using? Cocaine? Yeah,
1: cocaine heroin is way different.
0: Right, cocaine. You said 20 bags of cocaine. How no, much? 20 bags of heroin. 20 bags of heroin.
1: Yeah, that's just you have, That's just a glassy envelope, one little thing. So I needed okay. like 20 bags just to be like
0: straight. What would you say like the average heroin user uses? How many bags? It depends on if
1: they're shooting or the snorts. Because you could accomplish shooting one bag, what so, five but, bags. But is 20 doesn't.
0: bags a lot or, or? Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Okay. It's two bundles. Okay. Okay.
1: You know, so I'm coming off that. Right. I told them I didn't need methadone because I was still had some in my system. I thought, but I felt when it when I, when I was leaving, I was like I was going crazy in that little cell. Wow! I was drawing. I was up all night. It was like pacing, and
0: you know, facing. And so, do you tell them that you're like the the doctors there that you, all your drug use or not? Yeah, they
1: were gonna give me the methadone. Then I was like, ah. And then I told them to give it to me. And then, but then in those dorms, everybody in there has drugs because they're in there for some kind of medical ailment or whatever. So now when they say medication, there's a line from here down the block. Everybody's getting medication. He gets MS contin, morphine sulfate, because he's in a wheelchair. He got shot and got pain in his back. The next guy gets methadone. He's coming off this. The next guy gets Percocet. The next guy gets Xanax. The next guy gets this. The next guy gets this. So now you got these guys can all
0: be trading and like
1: Right, but they don't a lot of these guys don't even take the drugs. It's free from the city. So they make it like they take it and then they hide Uh, it in their wheelchair and then they sell it. That's the way it goes. So now you know. I mean, I'm not going to say any names, but no one
0: figures this out.
1: No, but they do They don't care. It's just, you know what it is. I mean, I guess you let this kind of stuff go in there. It keeps things quiet. Right. I think it's because you got to understand, CEOs. You know, it's a tough job. It's a tough job. Cops. You know, it's a tough job.
0: I mean, it's like it's like a zoo in there.
1: Yeah, and you're there by yourself. You're manning one post. You don't have a gun. So you got to be really careful in the way you do things. And stuff like that, it's like, listen, if they want to get high, let them get high. Does You know? But it was, you know, so that was going on. I was able to get morphine. I was getting able to get heroin. There's a lot of gang members there. I was able to do all that. And uh, <clears throat> eventually, November 12th, 2006, I snorted four bags of dope. I took 30, 20 pills. I overdosed.
0: And now we're just going to take a quick break to talk to you about my longtime sponsor in U.S. Wellness Meats. U.S. Wellness Meats has over 400 all-natural whole foods in their online store at uswellnessmeats.com. All of their beef, lamb, bison, and dairy products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. They also offer pasture-raised heritage pork, free-range poultry, and wild-caught seafood. They specialize in every single diet under the sun and have hundreds of paleo, keto, Whole30, sugar-free, and AIP-friendly options. All their foods are raised on family farms dedicated to sustainable and ethical principles, so you will never have any pesticides, herbicides, antibiotics, growth hormones, or GMOs. They ship anywhere in the country for only $9.50 for shipping and handling, and most orders are delivered within 24 to 48 hours of leaving their facilities go to uswellnessmeets.com today and when you use promo code podcast that's p-o-d-c-a-s-t you'll receive 15% off store-wide savings again go to uswellnessmeets.com use that promo code podcast and you'll get 15% off of every single order go check it out today now let's get back into it that was the first time you would overdosed
1: oh uh, no that was not the first time
0: when was the first time you had overdosed
1: I think it was like May of 2000
0: and this was when, you, so you're not no nowhere near jail at that point. No, on your own.
1: Yeah, I was supposed to start a film, an Abel Ferrara film called Rxmas. Okay. And it's ironic because in the film I sell heroin, and the guy who's supposed to show me how to bag it up because we do it on camera.
0: And you're like, I, I know and, how. <laughs> no,
1: no, no. But not even that. He was supposed to come that morning, and I overdosed. Wow. So we had to tell him, listen, you're not gonna make it if you want to come I'm... by land You know what I mean? So and it was like, you weren't
0: close to dying,
1: or? No, I was. I almost did die. Because I knew I was going to do this movie. So I wanted to go out one last night. Because then when the movie, you know, then I'm going to try to stay home as much as possible. Right. Stay in character and do what I'm supposed to do. Because I played a Dominican. And I wanted to, you know, speak the accent. And if I right. go do all this other stuff, right, right, right. I'm going to lose the focus that I need. Because it just makes it so much easier when you do focus. Right. It just comes so much easier. It's not like it's you're, you're dedicated. You're doing yourself a favor.
0: Right.
1: It's harder when you don't, you know? So... I snorted so much cocaine and then I needed a little heroin because I knew I was going to go home. I was going to take a little nap. And then the guy comes, he shows me how to do it. Because you got the bags here, there's the glassine envelopes. You grab the bag like this, you grab it, open it like this, like that. You get the McDonald's spoons. You know the ones, the little ones like that? Yeah. You stir the coffee, those long, skinny ones with just that thing. Yeah. That's the measuring. You get the bag, open it, the bottom, and then with the bottom bag right on the top, and you put it right in the thing. So it's a, literally a drop. It's so small. It's very powerful. Very powerful. Wow. That little drop can kill you. If you wow. that, that can kill you right then and there. Once you get that drip, your heart will stop. Heroin's very serious. It's not a joke. Yeah. And now especially with all this fentanyl and all this other stuff yeah. that they're putting in it, it's very, I, I would be afraid to relapse right now. You don't know what you're sniffing. It's not even heroin anymore. You're sniffing straight fentanyl, maybe 20% heroin.
0: So who found you when you it's overdosed dangerous. that first time? Uh, I don't know if I think it Are was you unconscious?
1: My, no, it was in my room, because they, I, they I told my mom, listen, come wake me up, because I know the guys come and they came to wake me up. I wasn't waking up, I wasn't responsive. Um, And then whatever happened, I was out, and then I remember feeling up to my neck, and when I looked up, my doctor was there. Oh, wow. You had police in my room, firefighters. It was a serious thing. There was water all over my bed. They were throwing water on me, trying to wake me up. Serious. Right. Um, So yeah, that's when was
0: my first overdose. And at that point, does anybody try to be like, "Hey Lilo, like, can I help you?" Like- no,
1: yeah, everyone, but you don't want to listen. Right. You don't want to listen, you know. So, you know, that was November of
0: two thousand six. So when you, the second time you overdosed in jail,
1: November twelfth, two thousand six, the second time,
0: and then November eighteenth, uh, it was a Saturday night. I sniffed four bags. So wait before I, before we get to that. So the the first time you overdose in jail, what I mean, that's not supposed to happen under no. under correction officers' watch.
1: No, especially a high profile inmate right. like they're that. Like no what way. are they?
0: What's going on here?
1: Right. So they, it was like a big deal. They had New York City detectives. You know, it was a really big deal. They came, taped my cell off. It was a you know crime scene, and uh, they wanted me to tell. I never did. They gave me eighty days in the box. For dirty urine, they did confirm it by giving me a urinalysis. It happened so, Saturday, Monday, they gave me the urinalysis. Sure enough, I was dirty. So I went to the box. And right when I got to the box, my cousin Pat, my friend Corey, because Pat was an attorney, right, right. and Corey's an older gentleman, he's an attorney. So they came to see me on an attorney visit. So they were very disappointed. And these are, I love these guys. They, we play around, they weren't playing around. They're like, dude, somebody's dead. You're doing all this time. And people are here for you. We love you. We want to see you through this. But you're doing this. You're Mm -hmm. not going to have anybody. For some reason, It just clicked that day. And that November 18th, that Saturday when I did it was, because I went to the box November 24th. Because you never know when you're going. They just tell you, your number comes. Mm -hmm. You already got the tickets. And now the ticket's there. When they get room in that box, which you'll never know, they'll call them. So yeah, I got a room for your guy. Broncado, pack up. Let's go. You're going to OBCC. You're watching a movie. Next thing you know, Pack up, and you're gonna go sit in a room for 80 days. That's the way it goes. You want to use drugs? That's how it goes. And there's nothing you can do. You can call your lawyer, you can call whoever you want. You're going. So that's why you know that kind of stuff. It just like shakes you up. It makes you hard because like, I mean, you're sitting at home. You you cry pretty much. You know, when you're younger, you get what you want. You get your way.
0: It's not happening there. You know. So what's it like for you? Who I mean, you're a celebrity. You got everything in the world. You got the money. You got, and you're in the box. You're like, does it, does it hit you? Did you ever have a second in jail where you're like, wow, like you, you were able to finally process everything that had happened?
1: Yeah, it took, you know, once I started getting, you know, the clarity, getting sober and stuff like that, that's when it really started hitting me like, wow, I'm in a lot of trouble. But then I started learning the law. I started working out again. Uh, My first lawyer, Mel Sachs, he passed away, but then I got Joe Tacopina. He was Meek Mills' lawyer, A Rod's lawyer, but I had him before those guys. All right? <laughs> so, but Joe, Joe's, you know, saved my life. is was great and uh, got acquitted of all the top charges. I was uh, only found guilty of an attempted burglary in the first degree. So I got 10 years for that. So then I go upstate, completely, you know, sober, clean and sober. I didn't have my GED at the time. So, you know, um, I went to school. I got my GED right away. And then I enrolled in college, like a, a degree not a certificate, it was I a real that, yeah. recognized degree. And I studied, I did as much as I can, and I didn't, you know, I used the time wisely. It worked out, I did all the right things. I earned my, my credits, uh, you know, um, earned my 60 credits, got my associate's degree, got a six month time cut as a result of that. Came home January 1st, 2014. The beginning was tough. You know, the beginning was a little tough, people slamming doors and you know, my manager show me emails of like casting directors that loved me. And now my manager's trying to set up these his name's Eric Kritzer, trying to set up these general meetings for people to refamiliarize and myself to refamiliarize and hey, I'm back and you know what I mean? A general meeting like that. And uh I'm not gonna mention who it was, but I said, uh, you know, he says he told me, he said, Lilo, this is the kind of this is the kind of emails I get when I sometimes try to pitch you or for a general meeting. The one lady, and she cast me in something really big before, and she was, you know, and my manager, Eric Kritzer, said, uh, you know, I would love for you to sit down with Lilo. and She said, I would be afraid to be in the same room as him. This is the kind of stuff that I dealt with. But that's nobody else's fault but mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're involved in something that, you know, someone was killed. So maybe a normal person would be afraid. You're gonna kill me? What do you, you know? So this is what I dealt with. But you know what? I never let me let it take me off track. I knew the best way to to, to overcome all this is to become successful again. That's the bottom line. To become successful.
0: Did you know in jail? you were you thinking about the return and how you're gonna make a, a return to to acting? And
1: it wasn't so much about the acting. I knew I was gonna get my freedom again. I didn't really, you know, like the acting was a bonus. If it happens, it happens. But it's like I, you know, but now I'm just somebody's dead. Right. You know, I can't be. You know, like did I, you feel? I'm just gonna get my freedom again. My family's still, you know. So it was like more grateful for just for that.
0: Were you able to to talk to the the police officer's family at at any point in time?
1: Um. You know, not when I was on parole, but I did do a couple things on restorative justice. Um. And I happened to meet, coincidentally, a relative of the police officer's sister. And, and uh, it was like a peace offering. Um, it was like a peace offering. And I said I would love to sit down. I would never do it because when I was on parole, that was like the first stipulation. You cannot go anywhere near these people. I don't try. I don't, nothing. And I respected that. Respe- My curfew was nine o'clock. If I, I used to come home at nine to two, 9.02, I would be afraid. I respected that, too. I respected all my parole officers. I did what I was supposed to do. And I was not going to let anyone derail me from what I needed to do. So what were we saying? Who were
0: we The police officer's family.
1: Okay, so I, um, I said, well, ask her. I would love to. Uh, and she told her she's not ready yet. You know? She's not ready yet. So, I mean, what am I going to do in a situation like that? But I did reach out, and uh, if you're not ready, that's, you know.
0: Do you carry any of the the shame? Do do you feel, um, or did you ever feel during your time in jail that, um, you know, a sense of I'm ashamed of myself or I'm ashamed that my uh, activities or my tendencies or my addiction um, led to all this madness? Absolutely. How do you cope with that on a daily basis now? I mean,
1: the way you cope with stuff like that is, I mean, the, the best and the most sincere apology is changed behavior. Right. So you changed from what you used to do. Like now, it's like, I can show you my, my last 10 texts, and I guarantee there's at least three or four people that I work with on a daily basis, and I try to share with them my experience and my strength, and you know, hopefully mm-hmm. it's contagious, and then they can... Learn from what I've been through, and then the next they pass it on to the next guy. That's what it's all about. So uh, when I do that kind of, st- if I was, if I was still doing drugs and doing stuff like that, I would feel ashamed. But ashamed is not what I am right now. I'm proud of what I've become. So I'm definitely not ashamed. And uh, listen, I definitely take full responsibility for how my actions and my drug addiction made a contribution a contribution in the death. Right. Because obviously I was there, you know, and uh something that I gotta live with. But as far as me killing the police officer, people say cop killer, that's like the furthest thing right. from the truth. Right, right. Okay, that's the furthest thing from the truth. Because it's like, how can I kill you when you shot me first and I was unarmed? I was unarmed and you shot me first. No,
0: and I think anybody who knows the case knows yeah, that. Yeah,
1: you know, it's like, I got shot first. Right. I understand I'm on private property. I did not have a gun. I did not do anything, anything for where you, you know, warranted for you to shoot me. Right. But you shot me. I understand you came out, and you heard broken glass, and you're trying to protect your neighborhood. And I understand all that. But, uh, you know, let's set the record straight. I did not kill that guy. And I don't feel like I should still have to suffer. Right. I paid my debt to society. I've been in, I've been a, I was a stand-up guy. I did my time like a man. I never told on anyone and I came home and I've devoted a big portion of my life to helping other people. So I think like people like still opportunities are taken from me. Oh, Lilo, we're gonna have to cancel the event. Some of the cops found out. Why? One time they told me they made a big deal because I went to this school in Jersey to talk to these kids and they were like, right message, wrong messenger. Who do you want them to learn from? You gotta have them learn from people that have been through it. And the fact that I think that you're like, writing this bad stuff about me after, I didn't get paid for that. I took time out of my day in hopes of maybe even helping one of those kids. Mm -hmm. And the fact that these cops did that, it's absolutely disgusting. Mm. You're you're right, you're protect and serve. How are you serving anybody if you're you're making a big deal about a guy that took time out of his day to like go help and make make things better, not worse? You're making it worse by making this. Some of these kids probably didn't even know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's just ridiculous.
0: So, and so I believe you're what, 13 years sober now? Four, 14. 14. Yes. Because it was 2006.
1: Right. November 18th. And, you, I just I just celebrated 14. Congratulations. Thank you, bro. Last, what was it, last week?
0: And so you were able to cut cold turkey? Um. That must be hard because, I mean, you were using a lot.
1: No, well, at that point, I didn't really have okay. a habit because okay. I was only getting it when I could right. in jail. The beginning was hard because I didn't, you know, that was kind of okay. how I had to go cold turkey. And... You know, dealing with this situation, right? You know what I mean. So, right. like, you could be in the best situation in the world, but if you were drawn from heroin, it'll make it really bad. So now you have like the worst situation in the world, right. plus that. So now it's like, oh, and you're in pain, and your
0: and your body's probably yeah, going well, crazy. Yeah, no? yeah,
1: yeah. But and I'm all shot up too. And you're all shot up. Yeah, so I'm like, this is all held together by staples. Oh. It was bad, bro. I was like 130 pounds. And
0: was there ever, I mean, any temptation from that? Point on to even when you were out, and it was easier to you know to dabble. I mean, how how do you how do you advise someone who is a recovering? Because I know there's a lot of the work that you do, who is um, either addicted or a recovering addict, uh, to tell them don't try it again, don't you know to stay away. Well, it's it's e- it's easier said than done to well, someone who has an addictive well, personality.
1: You gotta you know it's all about the way the brain works. We have a dopamine processing system. And then someone who's an addict, the dopamine is not processed as fast. So there's like almost like a hole in the soul. Right. So like, you know, the kids that are gonna become addicts, they eat a lot of chocolate when they're, and they do things to hit that pleasure, that part of the brain where right. they're lacking, right. okay? But drugs are not the only way to achieve that, you know, that sensation, but you mm-hmm. can do, you know, working out, working out will give you that same, that same feeling. And you know, helping someone, service, That's why it's so big in recovery, doing service and and being of service to others. When you go help someone else, well, that makes you feel good about yourself. That has intrinsic value. And that intrinsic value can lead to a dopamine rush. Mm -hmm. This is what you got to do. You got to change your habits from bad ones to good ones. Maybe every morning you go help these people at the, the, you know, the soup kitchen or you go do whatever that makes you feel good about yourself, bro. When you're, let's face it, when you're feeling good, you're not getting high. Right. It's when you're not feeling good is when you get high. So when you're doing all these things that make you feel good, you won't have to get high. And becoming mindful, how you just allow something to enter, you process it, and you let it go. As opposed to like ruminating. Because your mind is, you know, the, the, it could be the, the cause of all your, you know what I mean? Every, you know what I mean? Just in the way you're looking at things. But when you can become mindful, because listen, you go in recovery, you go to rehab, wherever you go, when you come back out, the world's still the same, right? You're still going to have these situations. nobody's going to change for you. You're the one that has to change. and the key is to become mindful, to become mindful to be able to, to be able to be in those situations where you see the drug dealer take it in and you just it's like it's like uh a, a, you know there's there's a term it's called urge surfing. what's like you know like urges are like waves. You know how the wave just starts and then it builds up? Right. It's like an urge and then it gets all the way up here. The more you feed that urge, it'll keep going. When you don't ruminate and you don't feed it, mm. it crashes and it goes away. And this is where the key in becoming mindful is mm. because you'll never extend that wave. That urge will go away. It'll go away because the when the urge first hits you is not when you get high. Sometimes when it lingers and it just doesn't go away. Because in the beginning, you do have that and you think like, ah, well, I can't, and then it just doesn't let you go because you're ruminating and you're you're not using your mind in the right way to be able to combat this right now. But it doesn't mean you're, you can't learn how to do that. That's the key. And, uh, you know.
0: Do you ever resent yourself for um, falling into the addiction in the first place? Not that it was your fault, but do you ever feel like man what the fuck i wish of I, course
1: of course i wish i would have took things a little slower um i just and i wish i would have had a little more experience if i was even a few years older maybe that wouldn't have happened
0: what would you have told yourself now tell maybe to if you tell a little 15 16 year old who's starting to to get all that fame and all that you know people noticing you in oh, stardom
1: well well i would say is don't stop being a kid your age and don't stop doing age appropriate things don't lose that, because the grass is not green around the other side. Right. Okay. Yes, you have this opportunity, and it's what it is. It's work. So go do the work, get paid for it, but don't get stuck on all the other stuff around it. The parties, the this, the that. That's going to be your downfall. That's going to ruin you. Stay, be a kid. Don't lose. Do not let your education go. Other than your health, your education is probably the second best investment in in life. You can never go wrong. Invest. But your health—if you don't have good health, right. you can't learn. Or you could learn, but you're not going to enjoy what you learn and the fruits of what you. You know what I mean? Health is number one. But st- make sure you stick with your education, and and don't don't grow up too fast. That's what I did. Got to the point I was in my like late teens. It's like, what do I do now? What do you do now? Right. You don't know, see that? Like, I never went to my prom because I was. You know what I mean? It's like a lot of these things. Like I wish I could have done, but I thought I was like you know hot shit back then mm-hmm. and like uh. But no, no, that's where I went wrong. I grew up too fast. I let it get to my head. I made as Charles Palmentary said best, I made monumentally bad choices and they led to a disaster and someone lost their life. Forget the it was a cop, it was another human being not here.
0: Other now. than other than obviously someone losing their life, do you have any other regrets?
1: In that situation or in general? In general. I mean, I regret, you know, I could have stayed a little closer to Robert De Niro. But my 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 thoughts were like, this guy's probably got so many people that bother him on a daily basis that maybe I shouldn't do that and maybe I should be one of the guys that doesn't do that. But now that I look back in hindsight, I says, you know what, I really, because he would have probably, he's got a son my age. Hmm. You know what I mean? So it was like, and, and I, I looked up to him, so I know what he would have said. I would have listened to because I respect him. I look up to him. Same thing with my dad. I looked up and respect him too. But this is just another person
0: with another person's. And I heard that you had uh, met or you had seen him at I think it was a reunion uh, back in twenty seventeen.
1: Wasn't a reunion. They were shooting the uh, the Irishman.
0: Okay, yeah, it was that. And but you had seen Robert De Niro after the whole prison. Oh and yeah, everything. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you had a brief conversation, correct? Yeah,
1: like. Two minutes. Was
0: there I mean, when you see some of these people that you from that past life that of acting or the Robert De Niro's of the world, which is doesn't happen every day, did you feel like ashamed? Did you feel I mean what's that must be very different, you know, especially you hadn't seen him in 15 years?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean Yeah, it was very different. So much had happened, but he was still, you know, beautiful guy. Yeah. You know, came up, he was, you know, he asked me like real sincerely, are you okay? You okay? You know, asked about my family, and uh, it's great. You know, it was uh, and I, I do regret not uh, keeping as much in touch as I should have.
0: Now, so where do you go from here? Um, you know, I mean, you're 44 and a big a crazy life, I guess up until this point. But you're still young and you're healthy, and you know you look good. You're in shape. Um, is it? I mean, I know you've done acted in a bunch of different things uh, since you got out of jail. Where do you go from here? What do you what do you hope the next five ten years look like?
1: Well, you know, like I said, I got the, a film that I produced. It's called The Fury. My partner Victor Rios okay. he directed it. It's a vigilante movie. It's awesome. It's not your run of the mill. Where can uh, people watch it? Well, it's not out yet. Okay, we're we're out. still finishing the music. Okay. It's not your run of the mill independent film. It looks like a huge studio film. It's awesome. Um, then I have a film called Made in Mexico. Mario Lopez produced. I okay. play like a Mexican cartel cardel- tel- guy. My friend Tootie Rinks, Rodney Rinks, Tootie we call him, he was the writer, uh, director. Um, it's like a comedy, you know, it's pretty cool. Because the guy owes the guy money, when well, he was like, he can't pay him. Then they kidnapped this writer, the the, the cartel guy. And he tells well, then you're going to do the movie here about my life with my guys. You got guys holding up, like, like these metal things, His guys, like, you know, for the bounce, for the light. Yeah. They hold the phone. It's just funny. It's really, it's, uh, it's... Uh, the relationship that we had in the film was kind of like Robert De Niro and Billy Crystal. And analyze this. Mm-hmm. You know the guy was scary, but he had that you know that that real that side to him where you only saw when he was with this guy right. because he could kind of like let his guard down and he find him. It it's really it's really it was well written. It was good. And then I have a film, a short film called uh, "I'm on Fire." Um, <clears throat> Michael Spitzer. Uh David Stern, they wrote it. Michael directed it. It's with Jamie Lynn Sigler. Okay. Girl from Surprise plays my wife. Um, I play an abusive dad. It takes place in the eighties. It's really, really good. Like really good. Like I can almost say like Academy Award level. Wow. Yeah, that good.
0: Wow. When yeah. when is that gonna come out? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. Um to wrap things up. Do you ever think about um Can I also mention one thing? Go.
1: Remember I was mentioning the Director of Public Relations. I just want to also mention, you know, more life recovery mm-hmm. when intensive outpatient in New Jersey. Um, you know, great bunch of people there. My boy Stevie Barone, who, you know, who took me in and gave me the opportunity, Joe Coyle, guys like that, Kenny, Casey. Um, and I, I'm I'm so blessed mm-hmm. to have been given this opportunity because when you, you know, like it's also a job, but you stay plugged in. Right. You stay where you're supposed to be. This you gotta stay in this world you gotta stay helping people because that keeps you safe because mm-hmm. now it's like oh this kid's depending on me he's really looking up to me you can't fail because then you fail him too right. so now it's like oh, that extra layer of strength so it's a real blessing uh, I love working there I love everyone there and uh, you know I mean this is you know addiction's very very serious you could be here today gone tomorrow and yes it can happen to you it can happen to anyone so don't think it can't Um, And listen, if anyone out there that's watching this, it's either them or know someone that is sick and struggling and needs help, don't even waste not even another half a second. Get the help that you need. Seriously, if 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 you're a mother or a father, you know, keep your kid off drugs if you want to save the kid's life. Just like Carol O'Connor said. He said those exact words. Keep your kid off drugs if you want to save that kid's life. Because if he's gonna stay on drugs, he's probably gonna die or end up in prison. So this is, you know, the the urgency is, you know, get get the help.
0: And finally, do you uh, do you ever think about how you hope to to be remembered, or you know, I want to be legacy. Re-
1: yeah, I want to be remembered as a guy, you know, who's uh, you know came up really fast and did some great things, but then went down really fast and but showed that uh, second chances are real and that someone can turn their lives around. And that it's not—it doesn't matter how you start the race;
0: it's how you finish. Beautiful, and people can follow you on Instagram at Lilo underscore Brancato. Yes,
1: L i l l o, L i l l o underscore Brancato. B r a n c a t o.
0: Beautiful, Lilo. It was a, a pleasure um, to have you on, and I just—I I mean,
1: uh, I, I'll <laughs> shake your hand. You I don't care. And I, I care. and
0: I, you know, I—I I mean what a life, obvi- uh, obviously, but also I think it's beautiful to see someone um, turn their life around and help others. And I think that ultimately that's, that's what the message is about. I know that's what your social media is about. And I know that, um, you know, it's, uh, it's beautiful to see people do that. And uh, thank you for, for, for doing that for people.
1: Thank you, bro. I appreciate thank that. Thank you. Thank you.